I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. This week, we dip into the Q&A files for an interview with Pamela Constable, former longtime Afghanistan and Pakistan bureau chief for The Washington Post. She joined us to discuss her 20 years of reporting in the region, the people she met, and how the issues she covered evolved. Pamela Constable, longtime foreign correspondent for The Washington Post. I feel like I should start off by saying welcome home. Thank you. Well, that you should, and I'm delighted to be home. Uh, all told, how many years of your reporting career or percentage have you spent overseas? Um, I guess cl- close to half. Um, first with the Boston Globe. Um, I worked for a number of years in Latin America, um, so that was cl- close to a decade. And then off and on with the Washington Post, it comes out to be close to a decade. So. When you decided on journalism, how did you gravitate towards foreign reporting? Oh, well... Um, my earliest interest in journalism was really more about domestic issues, you know, poverty, um, drug addiction, social, social ills, you might say. So I did a lot of work on that in the early years. And then I guess, I don't know, I traveled a little bit overseas as a tourist um, to unusual places, and I began to think that some of these same issues were definitely there and more, and the struggles and problems were deeper and broader, and I just wanted to, to try that. What special skills does it take to be a foreign affairs journalist as opposed to someone working domestically? Um, I mean, there's a, there's a number of things I wouldn't norm- necessarily call them all skills. Um, there's a number of sort of ways you have to be. Um, you have to be ready to change things quickly to make decisions very rapidly, to change uh, course, um, to leave if something's dangerous, um, to go places you weren't expecting to go. Um, uh, you have to be prepared, um, depending on where you are, to go for a long time without sleep, sometimes without taking a shower or washing your hair. You know, you have to be really prepared to be sort of mobile and very, very flexible, um, as well as, you know, sort of intrepid. I mean, you have to sort of be willing um, to go places that other people might be willing to go because you're looking for something that is a problem. Usually it's a, um, there's a a revolution, there's there's poverty, there's, you know, uh, a natural disaster, there's um, a fraught election, there's something happening that is disturbing. And so that's news and that's generally why you're there. Um, So, as again, it's not for everyone. Um, You also need to be... um, either able to speak foreign languages or have somebody with you who's very good at speaking whatever language you're working in because you don't want to miss things. You don't want to miss the subtlety, the nuance. Um, you know, you can probably learn to read the headline quickly or, you know, say hello, but you really want, you're being immersed in a place sometimes for the first time where you don't know people sometimes um, and you want somebody to be able to help you who can really, you know, sort of give you the real sense of what's going on. So that translator really has to be a partner in reporting with you. Absolutely. And uh, how do you find someone? When you find someone, do you stay with them so that you can trust their their skill level at, at interpretation and uh, and also they that they know the nuances of what they're translating well, in, to? Well, in many cases, there's already somebody there. In other words, there are a number of um, cities that I've worked in or capitals where they had a full-time 
one or even two uh, interpreters assigned um, who lived there, worked there, knew the languages, if there were more than one, knew several languages, and you went out with them as a matter of course. So that helps a great deal. But if it's an emergency situation, a crisis, a place you've never been or maybe been once, then you're really stuck. Um, and so one of the things that I've done over the years when I was in that situation, what I would just land at the airport and ask the taxi driver to take me to the nearest newspaper. And I would like throw myself at the mercy of the editor and ask if somebody could help me out and I'd offer to pay them and sometimes they would just want to go with me and um, that was one one sort of obvious thing to try. It didn't always work, um, but generally I was able to find somebody at least for the first few days that could help me out and then see what happened after that. Were there uh, particular challenges as a female journalist working in Muslim countries over the past few years? Um, at first, um, I made mistakes. Um, I always tried to dress modestly, but sometimes it wasn't modest enough. Um, you know, I, sometimes I failed to cover my ankles and didn't realize that was disturbing people I was talking to, although those tended to be more, you know, when I was interviewing some religious cleric or something like that, and I thought I was dressed properly, and it turned out I wasn't dressed properly enough um, for them, and so I learned how to sort of adjust that. Um, um, one of my favorite incidents was when I was um, interviewing um, uh, a leader of the Taliban during when they were in power, and I was with another woman. We were together, journalists, and we were interviewing this Taliban um, official, and um, we we were both very, very tired. We hadn't slept in a long time, and something he said or something sounded funny, and we both started giggling. This was a huge mistake, and um, and the man was extremely offended and got up and left the room and never came back. So you really have to be able to sort of restrain yourself, I would say, um, and adapt to the circumstances and to the audience. And you don't want to offend people. You don't want to um, disturb them. Um, sometimes people will say things that are very critical of the United States or, um, you know, of, of the West. Um, that is more common than than somebody saying something offensive about being a woman or causing problems. I mean, people tend to be, generally speaking, I'm speaking very broadly now, more helpful to a woman than to a man. They can also try to take advantage of you in various ways. Um, but generally, my experience has been that if they're not going to like something about you or not going to mistrust something about you, it's not going to be because you're a woman. It's going to be because you're an American. You wrote that you were never injured, but along the way you lost many friends, a number of friends. Uh, how did you stay safe all those years? Oh, I've been injured many times, but always in very small ways that I wouldn't <laughs> bother recounting, you know, because stuff happens. I mean, I've been covered with black and blues and fallen out of Humvees and all sorts of stuff, but nothing uh, nothing seriously damaging. And I, I feel my very, very lucky about that. Um, and, and yes, I have lost some very close friends. Um, it, it's sort of luck, that some ways it's the luck of the draw. I mean, one of my oldest, closest friends was killed in Iraq, but in a car accident. Um, it was connected to the war because it was during the war, and they probably were going too fast, um, and they were probably nervous, um, and, and the car, um, there was a terrible car accident, and she was killed. So, again, it was being there, but, but not directly connected with the violence, so to speak. Um, 
other friends I've lost were people who had to get sort of closer to the action, particularly people who worked in television. A very close colleague of mine, a friend of mine in Afghanistan, an Afghan um, television journalist, um, was killed in a suicide bombing um, uh, just last year where he had gone... It was one of those terrible situations where somebody reported a suicide bombing in a certain neighborhood in Kabul, and then they sent out the television crew to follow it up, and when they got there, there was a second bomb. And this happens a lot uh, there, and it's, it's particularly sort of cruel. Um, and But I've lost other, other kinds of friends um, in Kabul. There was a wonderful restaurant, a Lebanese restaurant, where... I used to go all the time uh, with friends, and it was a very it was a it was a lovely oasis, um, you know, very you know casual and nice. And the owner was a wonderful Lebanese gentleman um, who I'd gotten to know over the years. And um, uh, one time, it was in 2014. I wasn't there at the time, but I had been there just the week before, actually, in that restaurant. I was back in Washington, and um, the Taliban uh, broke into the restaurant. Um, uh, set off bombs and shot and killed everyone inside, including the owner. And that was, it was, it was awful, and it was a real turning point for me and and many of my foreign friends there. Turning point in what way? Did you think in the about sense not going of feeling back? like where wh- where is there a sanctuary for us? Where where can we be safe? Where can be, we feel welcome? Um, um, I mean, there were other sort of issues, like some places served alcohol, and that was a separate issue um, that made some places have problems. Um, and, of course, there were embassies, and, of course, there were people's homes, um, and I felt very welcome in, in a variety of people's homes. I have several, you know, still have several very close friends in Kabul with, you know, beautiful beautiful homes and offices that I could go to. But it it, it was more the sense of feeling like... I mean, I was in Iraq. I did know what urban warfare was like. I had experienced urban street-to-street warfare. I had not expected that in Kabul. And that incident and several others that happened after that made it feel much more like that. So your last three years you were stationed in Kabul covering the region. Uh, What was your life like? Were you living in a compound? Were you living in the community with people? And how did you keep yourself safe in that environment? Well, I had lived in Afghanistan a, a number of different times, different periods of times, um, sometimes in hotels, sometimes in guest houses, sometimes in community homes, uh, often or almost always shared with other journalists, other foreign journalists. Um, but in the last several years, there were fewer foreign journalists there, and the safety became much more precarious. And so um, during these last several years when I was there, um, myself and most of the other Western journalists, we lived inside the sort of the diplomatic zone, um, which was highly guarded, um, you know, high barriers, lots of check, uh, body checks, I mean, I mean, car checks, and then searches on the way in and out. Um, and it was much more restricted. I mean, it was still a nice house and office, but once you were outside the actual uh, place you were in, you were very much in a, in a confined area. So when you would go out to do your reporting from the, your, where you lived, uh, how, did, how did you travel? Did you have to take special precautions, or did you just blend in with society as you made your way to report? Well, you can never blend in. Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody who looks like me would never blend in. I mean... In the early years after the Taliban lost power, there were lots and lots of Westerners around uh, in the streets, uh, going to restaurants, going out, doing things, shopping. Um, 
going to meetings, you know, uh, uh, not casually, um, but more normally. Uh, but in these past several years, because the danger was so much worse and there were so many suicide bombings and so many attacks, um, I would go out when I needed to or when I wanted to, but not casually, not without sort of letting somebody know in my office where I was going. I, I haven't walked sort of on the streets of Kabul in a long time, um, always in a car, always stopping and then leaving, staying a short time and then leaving. Um, very, very different from the early years when you literally could just walk around. And, and if, if I did walk down a main street in Kabul today, I would not see anyone who looked like me. So you've brought some photographs along uh, that we're going to use to help understand your experience mm. and m most importantly help Americans understand mm -hmm. this region of the world we've been so involved in over the past a couple decades. Before we get into that in a more um, macro sense, after your first in 2004, you wrote a book that's titled Fragments of Grace, My Search for Meaning in the Strife of South Asia. And now another decade has gone by and it's gotten more complicated. What, what is happening with your own search for that meaning as the situation you've been covering gets even more complex? It's a very good question, um, and one that I can't answer yet. It's certainly something that I have thought about a lot, comparing before and after. Um, I've thought about sort of new ways to write about it. Um, one of the reasons that um, I was, um, you know, felt it was time to come back from living in those countries was because I felt that I was losing some of my creativity, some of my sense of something, something that's important and new and exciting, and, and, and how do you write about it? How do you keep writing about something that isn't getting better, that isn't changing, that's still, you know, how do you write about a suicide bombing for the dozenth time in a way that's different? Obviously, the people are different. You can find out about them. You can, the circumstances will be different, you know, in case recent bombing at a wedding, which was very unusual. And there have been, obviously, everything is different. But it's the same problem that keeps recurring and recurring. And I had stayed a few extra months because there was a great hope that the peace talks were going to bear fruit. And then instead, they were canceled. Uh, and they're now still suspended. Um, we don't know what's going to happen with that. So, um, I felt as if the search for meaning, as I originally called it before, uh, was harder to find. And and if you if you you know the title "Fragments of Grace," which I'd used, um, and if you saw my book or read it, you know it had a lot of anecdotes in it about individual people I'd met who were special or not necessarily um, you know people who'd won something or gained something, but people who had touched me, people whose experiences had touched me, and. In, in reporting about whom, I had found something uplifting. That, that was what I was looking for. Uh, and that's what I meant by that title. And, and that has become harder and harder to find. You still find people that are um, you know, doing something special, who are unusual, who are triumphing over adversity. Um, my, my 
second, my more recent book, the one about Pakistan, um, I, my epilogue is about, you know, Abdul Sattar Idi, who is an extraordinary man, who just one of the, I, I think is actually probably the only saint I've ever met. He's, an, he's, he's dead now, but he's an elderly man who um, came from a well-to-do family, could have had a normal career in business, um, but he devoted his life to helping the very, very, very poor um, in, a, in a really unique way. He founded this ambulance service, um, and it's basically, it was sort of a, a very nitty-gritty. Um, he, one of the specialties of his work was going around and collecting um, dead bodies of people that didn't have anybody to bury them. Very, very humble and literally wanting to help those who had no help. And I, I, I was very inspired by him, and I was very glad that I did meet him before he died. Before we look at your photographs, how did photography become part of your work? I've always loved to take pictures, and so I've Everywhere I've gone, I've always taken lots of pictures, and um, sometimes they've been used in newspapers, other times not. I've, sometimes they've been in my books. Um, but I always feel that it's, um, it just adds so much to the texture and richness of what you're reporting on to, to, to show people and, and their environment. And how many do you think you have now? Oh, my God. Thousands and thousands. <laughs> what are you going to do with them all, do you think? Well, um, a lot of them are in, you know, sort of would be hard to sort of use now. They're an old old camera, you know, chips that don't, you know, or, or even before that film. I mean, a lot of it was film in the early days. Most of my work from Latin America and taking pictures is all in film. And I, somewhere I have these, you know, slips of, you know, glycine, whatever you call those, slips of, of negatives somewhere. Um, more recently, you know, the chips. And now it's all digital. So I also had my cell phone destroyed, so I lost a lot of those. Mm. So, you know, I, I have saved some precious ones, but I've lost some precious mm. ones. Well, uh, we're going to start with Afghanistan. And as I mentioned to you before we started taping, um, I'm going to give our audience just some very brief facts <coughs> about the major countries that we're going to talk about, just so they have some context. Um, these facts are all from the CIA fact book and from USAID. Uh, Forty million people live in the country. It's 25% urban, so 75% rural. The median age in the country is 19. Uh, life expectancy, 52 years. 99% Muslim, 85% uh, of, of which are Sunni. Uh, per capita income, $550 a year. Uh, but here's the U.S. connections. The U.S. Uh, AID budget, including Department of Defense, uh, all aid to to the country in 2016, seven, uh, $5.7 billion, $5.7 billion. Um, U.S. spending on the war since 2001, $975 billion. U.S. military casualties, 2362 deaths, 20,000 people wounded. Civilian casualties estimated at 38,000. That's from Brown University, cite the cost of war. So that's the state of the country. Who are the combatants there today? Well, today, um, it's, it's, you know, the war there has been a real roller coaster with different phases and different, um, different players, you might say. Um, it's obviously the American and the NATO component now is much, much, much smaller. Um, there's really only a few thousand uh, international forces there left, and they're basically confined to training and advising, except for the special forces who do participate in combat with, with the Afghans. But that's a separate, it's kind of a separate small program. It's not the major part of the war. Um, so you still have the Taliban. The Taliban, which 
came roaring back in 2006, 7, and 8, uh, is, is still remains a full-fledged, um, very committed, very uh, well-armed uh, insurgency. Uh, and it is still wreaking havoc all over the country, including the capital. Um, you have the much smaller um, uh, faction of ISIS or the Islamic State, um, which is not affiliated with the Taliban, sometimes works with them and sometimes works against them. They are obviously, they're internationally based, they're not domestically based the way the Taliban is. Um, and they're much smaller in numbers, but they're extremely ruthless in Afghanistan as they have been elsewhere. Um, so they do a lot of damage, um, which is uh, punching far above their numbers, especially in suicide bombings. They have done dozens of suicide bombings in Kabul and other cities, which have been extremely devastating. Um, so those are the two, you know, the sort of the two bad guy factions. Um, and then on the other side, you have Afghan forces, um, you know, you have military, you have police, um, you have uh, an air force, uh, and you have, um, again, advisors, uh, international advisors. Um, the Afghan forces have been through a lot of difficulties, a lot of ups and downs. Um, uh, they've come under a lot of criticism for corruption, for poor leadership, for, for, for some really intrinsic problems. There's a new leadership now uh, in the Afghan forces, which the Americans and NATO leaders have a lot of hope uh, for. Um, they seem to be doing a better job. Um, but the war is still as a st at a stalemate. Um, the talks are not happening anymore. And so there's not a pause in the fighting, but there's certainly a pause in figuring out how to stop it. Well, to understand what life is like for the, uh, the uh, citizens of this country, we're going to look at your pictures. They go back in time. Our first one is from 2015. Mm. Uh, and this is uh, during the election and uh, the mm. searching of a woman mm -hmm. voter. So uh, you've chosen these. Uh, what, what does it say to us uh, about the situation at the time and the hopefulness around elections mm. in the past? That's a, uh, that's a, a woman uh, in the Shiite Hazara neighborhood of Kabul, which is a large, uh, poor minority district, um, which has received the brunt of attacks um, by both uh, Taliban, particularly by ISIS, uh, uh, in in uh, in the capital. Um, she was in a long line of of, of women voters uh, lining up, being searched before going to the polls. Men were men vote separately there. Um, and I think, I think she was sort of startled by me rather than by what she was doing. I mean, the, the, the Shia, the Hazara minority in Kabul is um, better educated and, um, and, and very politically committed um, than a lot of other groups. I mean, they really are, um, a lot of them have come back from Iran, from long exile in Iran. And so women among the Shia Hazaras are tend to be, to be better educated, to have more rights, more, I should say, more encouragement from their families and their community to do things like vote, uh, and to be out in public, to be participating in public life. Um, in many parts of Afghanistan, especially rural ones, which are either Pashtun or Tajik, you don't see that as much. So even though she's looking sort of um, uh, disturbed, she represents... Um, a very important trend of you know women participating in public life in Afghanistan despite the dangers and her community has been attacked many many times including during elections for women in the cities are there more rights uh, is there a rural or urban divide uh, on how women are treated in society 
Yes, I mean, there's a rural-urban split sort of in every kind of sort of social uh, and political sense. I mean, uh, women in the capital and in provincial capitals in large cities, women tend to go there either to have jobs or to get education or because their families um, want them to be uh, 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 more involved in things. There are a lot of... um, things that they can do. Women can work in ministries, women can teach school, women can, you know, women have more accepted roles in urban society in Afghanistan, no matter what their ethnic background. Um, In village life in many parts of the country, they're still very circumscribed by culture and society and what they can do. Um, In many parts of the country, they still do not leave home without being fully covered, including their face, and without having a male relative at their side, which means their lives are very, very circumscribed. In many parts of the country, um, the culture still does not accept that women should go to school after they reach um, the age of puberty. Many, Most of Afghan society now accepts that they should go to school as young girls. But once they reach the age of puberty, which in that society is considered the age of marriage, um, or almost the age of marriage, or certainly the age of being betrothed, then in many cases they are taken out of school. Next photograph, also Hazara women. Uh, This is 2016, and it's titled um, Women Mourning in a Kabul Graveyard. Mm. Yes. That was a particularly haunting place just geographically, if you look at it. This is sort of the very, very, very far southwestern edge of Kabul, which is right on the edge of the high desert. Um, And those women are, and with some children, are participating in in mourning uh, after there was a a terrible suicide bombing. This was in August 2016. There was a peaceful protest among young Hazara leaders and students and others. It had to do with basic rights. It had to do with electrical power access. It had to do with a variety of of complaints that the community had. And there were, you know, thousands and thousands uh, gathered at a giant traffic circle in Kabul. And there was a suicide bombing. Um, there, which was attributed to the Islamic State, in which uh, I believe 80 were killed and I think hundreds injured. It was a terrible bombing. Um, and, and in Muslim custom, you have to be buried very quickly. And so this was probably within 48 hours. Um, uh, these were probably mothers and aunts uh, and other relatives of some of the victims. So much of your work has had to have been centered on this, but how have you... Um processed all of the strife around religion and religious factions, especially in in Islam uh, over the years. I mean, so much of this to Westerners uh, seems uh, really incomprehensible. Uh, help us understand how these the daily bombings that people have to live with and uh, the constant threat of... Uh, of people within other sections of their religion um, mm-hmm. uh, really don't want them uh, to integrate or be part of their lives. It's 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 a complicated question that you're asking. Perhaps one way to answer it is to look at something as a spectrum or a continuum, because there are many different factions. There's Sunni, Shiite. There's you know there's um, there's factions within both. Um, religions. Um, we have to state from the outset that in the case of Afghanistan, there are no Christians to speak of. So essentially, these are this is a Muslim, it's an all-Muslim society. There's a few Sikhs and a few Hindus. I mean, within just a few thousand. Um, but every, it's 
something uh, Muslim. But there's a spectrum, right? And so if you want to take it in terms of, you know, I don't know, liberalism versus orthodoxy or um, modern versus um, uh, ultra-conservative, um, there's everything. And so, and so you find, um, you know, on one end you'll find, again, Hazaras who've come back from from Iran who are, you know, wearing clothing much like I'm wearing, or not not, not like you're wearing, but much like what I'm wearing, sort of normal clothes with a headscarf, going to school, studying, um, learning English, learning computers, you know, getting all excited about the future. Um, and then in the way, way, way far other end of the spectrum, you would have, particularly in Pashtun, but not only Pashtun parts of the country, ultra, ultra restrictions on um, on on social behavior on terms of you know the right to marry the right to uh, which is all it's all arranged and has nothing to do with what you are interested in but it's not just about women it's about it's about I mean that's why it's it's hard to answer that question because look at the Taliban right the Taliban are Sunni Muslims they are from the dominant Muslim sect in Afghanistan they are from the largest Muslim sect in Afghanistan What's the difference between then, them and non-Taliban Sunni Muslims? The difference isn't that great. What they actually believe and what they um, observe is not that different. In fact, in many cases, it's coincidental. I mean, it's, it's the same. Um, praying five times a day, um, uh, um, doing the things, observing the religion in the same way. The difference is that most people... Most Afghans do not want to see violence and extreme uh, cruelty used to propagate or to enforce their religion. Back to photos. The next one, 2016 as well, uh, also from Kabul. Scavenger boy gathering mm. garbage near the old royal palace. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, this and it's. it's it, I was when I was <clears throat> looking at this picture the other day. I thought how it's it's good to show it because. Um, that palace has now been completely renovated. It's undergoing this massive, massive renovation. It's very beautiful now. That was built in the in the 1920s by King Amanullah, and it was it, it, he was it was a uh, or he lived there, and it was a beautiful old palace that was destroyed in successive wars. So it's a real. It stood for years as an emblem and an eyesore of all that terrible violence that has destroyed Kabul over the years. And so when I took that picture, which was about three or three and a half years ago, um, I really thought it really said so much. You know, there's a little boy who can't go to school. He's got this ragged bag in which he's collecting garbage, and that's what he does all day. And he happens to be near this extraordinarily once magnificent building that has been destroyed uh, by all the wars in his country. And I thought that picture said a lot. Next is uh, with someone you call your best friend. This is 2016 as well, King Kong. (laughs) King Kong is my best friend, and I hope he lives a long life and continues to be. He, is he here in the States or still No, here? he's in Kabul. He's, um, he's an, oh, an old fighting dog. Um, uh, one of the things I do in my private life or my free time is I try to help animals there, um, especially animals that have been injured or, or ill. And I've, I work with some, some Afghan people who we try, to, we try to help them the best we can. Um, and King Kong, 
um, again, it's another suicide bombing. Uh, this was, gosh, about five years ago, maybe. There was a terrible suicide bombing in a neighborhood, and at that time, I was going out more in the streets. To, to, and I went to this bombing site with my translator and my driver, and we were talking to people. And we saw in this alley this, this, this wretched-looking heap of bones that turned out to be a dog that was almost dead. And it was covered with sores and wounds and was starving to death. And believe it or not, even though it was a very large dog, I picked him up. I picked him up with my driver, and we put him in the car. Children were throwing stones at him. He was almost dead. And we just picked him up and put him in the car and took him back um, to, to a place where we were keeping and trying to help animals. And he, in these past five years, has recovered to be the healthy, happy, very loving dog. No one had ever loved him. I mean, he, he, he now loves people. He now is... A, a joy to be around, and um, he's sort of a gentle giant that I think is, again, emblematic of a society where so many things have been badly harmed, but, you know, he's a symbol of hope. We have two more from Afghanistan. This one is uh, of 2017. Mm. It's Cobbler. Mm. I wrote mm. a feature about him, you wrote, in his modest life in a war-torn country. Yes, he... Um, I really liked him. I... I, he was, that, you can't quite see, that's a little niche in a wall that he's made into his cobbler shop, and he sits there all day long, every day, and I used to drive by it almost every day on my way somewhere, because it was near my office, so I, I started to stop there from time to time, and, you know, with my translator, and just kind of chat with the guy a little bit, um, then I got him to fix my shoes once, and he was trying to charge me 50 cents, and I insisted on paying a dollar, it was just, you know, this, 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 this old gentleman who really represented a, a sort of a different era of, 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 of time in that country, you know, everything was personal, everything was quiet, all his customers were just friends who would sit and chat for a while and have a cup of tea and get their shoes fixed. But the other aspect of the story that's not obvious from looking at him is that as I decided to do the story and spend a little bit more time in that immediate neighborhood, I discovered that everyone I met, every shopkeeper, every person there had been affected by the wars in some way. They'd all lost someone. They'd all either been bombed or someone had died or someone had disappeared. Just in this little tiny crossroads of modest little shops, everybody there had a story to tell about what had happened to their family in the past 30 years of war. Um, and that's what the story was about. Last one, 2017 as well, also animal-related. This is Stormy, a donkey. Oh, Stormy. Well, uh, now, see, now, now you've, what's the matter you've with given you me the lie picture? that I actually <laughs> did get injured. I'd forgotten about that injury. Um, I was on a military base. I was on a military base, and um, I'm, I'm, I don't have, like, I'm not the strongest person in the world, but I was carrying a heavy pack on my back, and I had all my body armor on, and I had a helmet on, and it was dark at night. And I was walking through this, into this military base, and I tripped and fell on a cement um, parking lot. And that's the result. So um, it was, nobody har hurt me. <laughs> it 
was just bad luck. Anyway, Stormy um, was a donkey that um, I worked with some veterinarians there, and, and um, they were treating, starting to treat donkeys. Uh, donkeys there get in, in many parts of the world uh, um, as they carry heavy, heavy burdens. They carry bricks, they carry dirt, they carry stones, um, and they carry them on their backs. And um, they get no rest. They often don't get well-fed, and they almost never, ever get any medical treatment. And so, Stormy, if you saw Stormy, what's under that blanket, you wouldn't be able mm. to show it. It is I mean, covered with sores, covered with wounds, you know, bleeding. I mean, just the most saddest, saddest, saddest creature. So um, we took care of him for quite a long time. It took almost six months until his wounds were healed, and then we didn't have a place to keep him, so uh, we sent him to live with a nice farmer that somebody knew who knew somebody, and now he's living um, on a farm about, oh, I don't know, half an hour from Kabul, and we send him a little money every month to make sure he eats well. We're going to move on to Pakistan. Again, with statistics, 207 million people in Pakistan, 36% urban. The median age there, just a little higher, 24. Life expectancy, a little higher at 68. Mm. Of course, mm. 96% Muslim. Uh, U.S. aid in 2019, only 280 million, by comparison to what we just saw in Afghanistan. Uh, and you, you wrote a book, as you mentioned, in 2011 about uh, this country playing with fire, Pakistan at war with itself. What's the thesis of that book? The thesis of that book, in a nutshell, is that, um, and the reason I wrote it, was because when you live in Pakistan, you see that it's a country with tremendous potential. I mean, it has everything a country could want or need to develop in the way that, you know, Indonesia has developed, or Mexico, or South Africa, or Turkey. It has um, a huge population uh, to, to, to do work. Uh, it has um, lots of industrial development. It has huge cities. It has huge agriculture. Um, it, has, it has natural resources. Um, it has everything it could need to get ahead, except for the fact that it has um, a very um, entrenched feudal elite. Um, and I say feudal now as a state of mind, not nuts in terms of property owning. The gap between the rich and poor is is still too big. Um, and there's a real ceiling. You cannot get ahead in that country. It's very, very difficult to rise above poverty in, in Pakistan unless you have a connection of some sort. The public system of health and education and welfare is just very, very limited. And so um, what that has led to among other things, is the increasing popularity of extreme forms of Islam, the radicalization of Islam, particularly Sunni Islam in that country, particularly allied with Taliban, allied with al-Qaeda, allied with these other groups, has been in many cases because young people have very few options, very few ways to get ahead. So, you know, you've got preachers everywhere, you've got, you know, radical, you know, exciting meetings and opportunities and come join us and go to heaven. Um, and so it's very appealing. And um, I just want to, oh, you've gone, but the picture on the bottom right there, it's, it's a rally. And that rally is a rally by young Pakistanis supporting a man who assassinated a governor he was the governor's bodyguard, and he assassinated him because he believed that the, that the governor was, was uh, sacrilegious because he had defended a woman accused of blasphemy. And so this bodyguard murdered his own boss, killed him with 26 shots, and 
he became a hero and a saint to hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of Pakistanis. On to photographs. 2016, this is a bakery in an Afghan refugee community mm. in Pakistan. How uh, large is the refugee community in Pakistan? It's much smaller now. Um, during a succession of wars, um, it's particularly the, the Russian-Soviet time, then the Civil War, and then also the Taliban time, three successive waves of massive waves of refugees fleeing Afghanistan across this long 1,800 or 2,000-mile border into Pakistan. So for a long time, there's been this enormous refugee population, and they became settled because of the succession of wars. Many of them just settled there and stayed there. This is a bakery that's been in Afghanistan, sorry, in Pakistan for a long time. I mean, maybe 20 or 30 years, and it's very successful. Um, but um, there's constant um, uh, disputes between the two countries, and Pakistan is always trying to send the refugees back, and the refugees are always trying to stay. So it's a long, complicated tale, but I like that bakery because it really, it's become an institution now in its own way, and people know that it bakes good bread, and they go there. Another young uh, person, teenage tailor in Rawalpindi, mm. Pakistan, mm. in 2017. Mm. And you write, the millions of school chil school-aged children work in right. low-paying jobs. Yes. Yes, as I say, the, the, the public education system is very limited uh, in Pakistan. And there are lots of great private schools for people who, who can afford it. But for millions of families... Um, have children that work either part-time or full-time. Many of them go to, go to school in the mornings and work in the afternoons. Um, being a tailor is, you know, a, a very typical form of child employment. Many, um, many particularly girls work in weaving, weaving carpets at hand looms, which is very back-breaking work. Um, and others work in brick quarries, making bricks, which is also back-breaking work. There are a number of different jobs that children do. There are many scavengers. But I thought that that boy was particularly, I don't know, poignant somehow. Are there Western factories located there that use labor to manufacture clothes for the West? No, well, or for the West. I mean, I mean, there's text, there are lot, textiles is one of Pakistan's largest industries, but it tends to require skilled labor. Um, so the textile mills are a large employer of adults, but not so much of children. Back to women. This is Rawalpindi, Pakistan, 2017. Women in burqas shopping in a cloth mm, bazaar. Yes. Look that's at the colors a, in that. Yeah, I know. I love those colors. Um, that's a, a bazaar that specializes in wedding, uh, wedding clothes and wedding accoutrement. And um, that was a shop. You can see it sells. There's a lot of ribbons and bangles below the shampoo and everything. So those women are mostly shopping for bangles and, and sort of light jewelry and stuff. Um, and and um, weddings are a huge business uh, in Pakistan and sort of the, the premier social activity. So there's constant weddings, large families, everybody's always getting married. Being married, getting married is sort of the main social act um, of the society. And it's a way for women to get out and socialize and, and shop. And it's, um, it's very um, in, intrinsic to the society. But as you can see, they are covered when they go out. And we often hear of those uh, bombings happening at weddings. So there's, it sounds like there's plentiful targets. For them. Yes, there have only been a handful that I know of. Um, it's it's pretty rare that a wedding would be bombed just a handful of times. Um, uh, but yes, I mean that's particularly 
Those are the things that seem to make their way through the filter to yes. us here. There have also been in Afghanistan a lot of controversy over weddings that have been bombed mistakenly by NATO and American forces. So that's the other side of the story. Another photograph from, uh, you're going to have to help me with this, Fatah Zhang, mm-hmm. Pakistan 2018. Why'd oh, I love that picture. See my <laughs> hair? I told you my hair was a mess. But but that's me. Yep, that's uh, that's with a whole, whole bunch of sheep. Um, I was actually, um, uh, I was there that day. I was actually with a veterinarian. We were visiting, um, tr- treating some donkeys uh, in the area. Um, and we just have for your nonprofit? Yeah. Uh, and it, it just, we happened upon this flock of sheep and I just kind of waded into it. I just love that picture. <laughs> you certainly look happy. In I it. am. I was. Also, back to Rawalpindi for this one. This is very recent, 2019 mm. anti-polio campaign. Oh, yes. Um, yes, that's that's one of the very sad things that's happening in Pakistan. Again, going back to the issue of the enormous potential that it has as a society and as an economy that hasn't measured up to. Um, polio is making a comeback. It was almost eradicated. There were all these campaigns, public public campaigns, I mean, advertising campaigns, motorbike campaigns. Um, this woman is administering the drops in a school, and there were, you know, thousands and thousands of people administering po- anti-polio drops all over the country for the past decade, and they were really making great progress. Um, but they had um, several huge obstacles, one of which is that very, very conservative fundamentalist groups, including the Taliban, that oppose polio vaccines and accuse them of being a Western plot to sterilize Muslims. Muslims. That was a big obstacle to the campaign. And a lot of families got scared by that. Um, and also, there's just a lot of poverty and misunderstanding and, and fear um, in some of these communities that just generally has made it harder to, to reach everyone. But the government has tried very hard to actually reach every single child. Um, and this campaign, which I wrote about last year, uh, in the past year, um, was they were going door to door, school to school, really trying hard. We are moving on to India. We only have one photograph, but I still want to put the facts in. This country of 1.4 billion people, mm-hmm. median age there is 28. Uh, by the way, I looked up the U.S. median age, it's 38 for comparison to mm, all these countries mm, we're talking mm, about. Mm. Life expectancy, 69 years, 79% Hindu, 35% people live in cities, 21% of the population is below their poverty line. And the United States gave the country about $103 million in aid last year, according to the CIA World Factbook. So we have one photo. It's from uh, Allahabad, mm-hmm. Allahabad. <laughs> uh, India. Thank you. Yes. Uh, and this is all the way back in 2000. Why did you choose this? Um, I think because um, your your um, producer had asked me to find some pictures of me sort of at work, mm-hmm. um, and I, I so rarely have pictures of me at work as I'm, I'm a pre-selfie and a post-selfie person. It's just not my nature. But somebody, some another journalist took this picture um, of me at this incredible uh, Hindu ceremony. I, I've never been to anything like it. I, I hadn't slept in days. Um, this was, it's a gathering of, it's held every number of years, and everybody who can go, goes. There were, I, I think there were like five million people there on camping on the banks of this river, including me. And that was one of the, the Hindu uh, 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 priests or, or, or gurus, and uh, I don't know why he was patting me on the head, but there he was. I just thought that was a hilarious picture. Today, once again, we're reading so much about the tensions rising between India and Pakistan, mm-hmm. both nuclear states. Mm-hmm. How uh, concerned are those of you who are on the ground in that region about the possibility of nuclear conflict between these two countries? 
I don't think I would be astonished if a nuclear conflict were to break out between India and Pakistan. Um, there have been points in the past where it seemed like it might happen um, and always everybody pulled back from the brink. Um, now, I have to say that the rise of uh, Prime Minister Modi in India has um, has sort of ratcheted up the um, the the rhetoric, uh, the belligerent rhetoric uh, on both sides, um, has made um, uh, Muslims in India as well as Muslims in Pakistan much more worried um, about their freedom, about their rights. Um, you know, India has, I don't know if your statistics show it, but India has, I think, the second or third largest Muslim population in the world. I mean, there's, there's huge numbers of Muslims there. So it's not as if they're like, you know, living in different worlds. So it's not just a country to country. There's Kashmir, there's the whole border issue that's been flaring up um, recently. I don't think it could escalate into nuclear war. I don't think either government wants that to happen, and certainly the world doesn't want that to happen. But Lots can happen short of that. So our time is going to evaporate, and we're going to move on to Iraq, which we could spend a whole hour only on Iraq. Uh, We've got one photograph, and before that, it's a country of 40 million people, 70% urban, which is interesting. Uh, Per capita income now is about $5,000. U.S. last year spent $3.7 billion. 3.1 3.1 of which, uh, 3.1 billion of which was Department of Defense related spending. Overall, the United States has spent on the war since 2003. You ready for this? 1.06 trillion dollars. U.S. military casualties: 4506, 32,000 wounded, and estimated civilian casualties: 182,000. Help us understand those numbers. Um, in context of where it is today. Yeah, I mean, again, that's a whole other story, yes. as they say. But Iraq is a much wealthier country, obviously. It's an oil exporter, and, and it had a much larger middle class than either, than certainly than Afghanistan, and, and, and proportionally even than Pakistan. I mean, it's a, it's a much more sophisticated country. and um, But yet, still, obviously, it divided you know, very violently um, uh, between the major two religious sects and all the, you know, the sort of the, the war against uh, uh, Saddam Hussein uh, was successful, but it also unleashed um, all these all these forces, these sectarian forces, and and it was a very it was a very very bloody conflict. Um, I mean, it's going way back to talk about sort of the U.S. policy and the decision to invade, which is you know it's past history and it's what happened. Um, I guess today I would say that um, there's still terrible problems there, uh, as partly because of the neighborhood, what's happening in Syria, what's happening around them. Um, but Iraq is making a comeback. It is coming back to its old self in terms of its culture, in terms of its society. You know, I remember when when the bookstores all got bombed and shut down, and they're opening up again. Same with the cafes. Um, um, there is really a resurgence and revival. There's a real government in power now, um, and it, it, you know, it it it, it governs. Um, uh, so it's a it's a state that's rebuilding itself, a society that's rebuilding itself. Um, but again, so much was destroyed, and there's still so much tension there um, religiously um, that it's it, this is not it, it's not going to end soon. But it's certainly in a much better position. Um, to stabilize its future than, say, Afghanistan. 
Well, our photograph is going to be part of the Wayback Machine because it's from 2005. I want to show you that, and then I also have a little bit of a video uh, from a YouTube documentary that featured you both in the same theme. So let's look at this. Uh, oh, I this was wondering if did I'd sent you that. That's Apache. Yes. Who's Apache? Apache's the dog. Yeah. This is a little dog I rescued in Fallujah. I was in Fallujah. I was embedded with the Marines. So how do you remember Apache with all the animals that you've helped? Did this become a special Well, case he, to he you? was the only dog I rescued in Iraq, so that, that makes him stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I just found him in a... In a abandoned car he, he he had been abandoned and he was you know he he spotted a mark immediately and uh, followed me around so i ended up um ended up adopting him and um uh by hook or by crook i got him back to baghdad and um i uh i eventually found somebody who was willing uh, to take him back to the States. I'm not quite sure what eventually happened to him, but certainly made me a happier person. Let's look at this video. It's very brief. During the most ferocious period of fighting, Pamela Constable was embedded with U.S. troops. I did go out in the day with some patrols, four, five, six times, and... Uh, just you follow them exactly. I would always put myself right behind one Marine and I would step every step that he took and stay in his shadow because he had a big weapon. And it wasn't a guarantee of safety, but it did make me feel a little better. So that's from a, a documentary from Journeyman Pictures. Uh, so both of these are at a time of intense U.S. conflict in the region. Overall, in the course of your career, all these years spent in that region of the world, how much of it was in conflict zones as, as the conflict was happening? A great deal. I mean, I started out in the 1980s in Central America, um, covering the war in El Salvador, the Contra situation in Afghanistan, uh, sorry, in Nicaragua, um, also Honduras, um, uh, and um, spent a great deal of time in Chile, uh, covered the Pinochet dictatorship um, for many years, um, Colombia with drug, uh, drug trafficking and another guerrilla, same with Peru. I mean, a lot of the places that I have been, uh, Sri Lanka with the Civil War, um, a lot of the work that I've done overseas has been in conflict areas. And that, you know, I have to say, it's by choice. Nobody forces you to do this. Um, I felt <sighs> that it was important. I, f- I felt that the struggles that people were going through with repression, with revolution, with poverty, with um, just trying to survive... Um, were important to write about and to bring back to Western readers who um, might otherwise not know about them. You wrote a column uh, recently as you were coming back home about uh, your country and how it seems different to you since you were here last time. Uh, What are your observations on how this country has changed in the last several years that you've been away and uh, I guess we'll close on some of your big thoughts about your transition back into our society here. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a difficult topic. I mean, obviously, when, you know, when you're overseas covering an actual war, um, you know, you're, you're grateful to be alive. You're grateful to be, you know, um, protected. You try not to take sides. You're trying to just do your job and try to bring home the human side of a conflict um, without, you know, stating a policy or, or a prejudice. Um, 
But it's but it's dangerous. I mean, it's it's physically dangerous, and you have to be on your toes all the time. You have to be, as I said at the very beginning of this interview, you always have to be ready. Um, you're always tense. Um, as I contemplated coming back to the United States, um, I had really, I mean, obviously I followed the news like everyone else, but I hadn't I hadn't followed I hadn't I hadn't been immersed in American society for you know for a number of years and. What I was seeing and hearing in the news made me worried because it made me feel as if these same kinds of tensions are building up, and 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 the and the and you know the it, you know when you're overseas and people are critical of the United States, right? You you tend to say, well, you know, obviously you're not supposed to take a position, but you feel like you want to be representing something that you're proud of and something that that you that you can tell people that we are doing our best in the world and that I represent an independent newspaper I don't represent the government but I'm an American and I'm proud of that and it matters um, it has it means something special um, and in these past several years as we there's been much more controversy abroad about American government and policies and much much more um, uh, um, angry and, and, and violent uh, uh, argument in our country about about basic basic issues, not about you know one party versus another, but about you know basic understandings of of our laws and our government and our way of life um, and what it means. Um, it, it felt very alien to me. It felt it felt it was the first time I'd felt like I was after all these years of coming and going and coming and going that I was coming back to a society that was markedly different than the last time I had come back and that I wasn't quite sure what I was going to find. One thing that I'm sure struck particularly close to home, because I read your biography and your very first reporting job was at the Annapolis newspaper uh, where five journalists uh, lost their lives in a shooting last year. That's right. How did you process that? It was very strange because I was in, as as I wrote in that piece, I was sitting in my office in Kabul, which is surrounded by high bunkered walls and hot and and razor wire i mean it's, it really is a fortress and i'm sitting there looking out the window and i saw something online about something about annapolis and i so i checked it and and indeed this young man had this angry young man had burst into the doors of the first newspaper that i worked at out of college my first paycheck 125 dollars and we you know i was it was a, a nice little t- paper i made good friends there you know um uh, you know nothing terrible ever happened um obviously there was crime and there were political arguments but it was but it was a lovely town and it was a lovely place to work and some of my closest friends are those that i met in that early time which i went 1974 um and to have somebody burst in the door of that newspaper and just shoot spray a gunfire it might have nothing to do with anything else, but it certainly has something to do with the times we live in, with the availability of weapons, and with the ease with which raw, angry emotions can turn into violence, even in a place that matters a lot to you. Well, that is uh, all the time that we have. Thank you for bringing your photographs in, and will we be seeing more of your work as you process all that you observed and also observe our own country? I hope so. I'm going to be writing, you know, from time to time, uh, and I'm working on some longer, you know, pro- writing projects that hopefully will see the light of day. Well, thank you for being with C-SPAN for the last hour. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. 
You can also send us an email at podcast at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.